Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special Under the Radar with Callie Crossley podcast extra. Intersectionality may be a buzzword in the news, personal essays, and protest marches now, but it wasn't a well-known concept until scholar Kimberly Crenshaw developed and presented the theory in the 1980s. Crenshaw is a leading scholar in the fields of critical race theory and women's studies and a law professor at UCLA and Columbia University. As a result of the excellence of her work, Crenshaw was awarded the 2017 Gitler Prize from Brandeis University, which is granted to scholars who work make a lasting contribution to racial, ethnic, or religious relations. This is the latest in Crenshaw's awards and honors, which include a fellowship at Stanford, two Professor of the Year awards at UCLA, a spot on Ebony's Power 100, and the number one spot on Ms. Magazine's Feminist Heroes of 2015. Kimberly Crenshaw joins me now in the studio. Hello, Kimberly. Hi. I'm so delighted to have you. It is just quite an honor, and congratulations on your Thank award. You. Thank you, Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited. So as we said, you coined the concept of intersectionality some 30 years ago. Describe what you meant to define with it and how you came up with the concept. Oh, (laughs) well, so, you know, they say that necessity is the mother of invention. And that was pretty much what I was trying to do. I, I had a problem and I was trying to find a concept to help me conceptualize the problem. So in the 80s, I I was a law student, um, had gone on to become a law professor. I was really interested in tracking how black women's employment experiences were regarded by the courts. I had been in social justice movements. I'd been organizing as a black student activist at Harvard for diversity. I'd been organizing as a woman for women's studies issues. And I'd found consistently that in each of those struggles, the way that black women experienced racism or sexism just hadn't really been taken up in a meaningful way in the movements. So I was interested to see if you could sort of find some space within the law where that could be thought about. So I started looking up cases, and I pretty much found the same thing was happening. Black women were bringing employment discrimination suits in contexts where African-American men might be hired, but not African-American women, where white women might be hired, but not African-American women. And I was finding that courts were having a real hard time understanding how a black woman could experience discrimination as a black woman if black men weren't experiencing the same thing or white women. And it just didn't make any sense to me why they couldn't see it. So I was trying to think of a, a real common, easy way of saying, look, when you're subject to two distinct forms of discrimination because you're black and female, your experience might be different from that of a man who's black or a woman who's white. And a lot of times when I think, I I draw pictures, I I try to come up with, I'm I'm a metaphorical thinker, Mm -hmm. and it just came to me that a very easy, everyday metaphor that people should be able to build understanding on top of was an intersection. So if you are 
black and female, you happen to be traversing space where you're subject to traffic that's going to impact you that is patriarchal or traffic that's going to hit you that's racist or any number of other things. And when those two things came together, the impact is a distinct form of discrimination that for the most part, anti-discrimination law didn't have anything to say about. Feminism didn't have much to say about anti-racism didn't have anything to say about. So I was just trying to think of, if you get an intersection, then you should get what these plaintiffs are actually asking you to attend to. So after you coined the phrase and defined the concept for people and helped them see it metaphorically, way back in the day, which was now, you know, 30 years ago, how did people come to really begin to see it and understand where you were coming from. Because now I want to make it clear that people are throwing the word around today like we all know it. But this was an entirely new way of thinking. And this took a minute for people to sort of grasp what you were saying. <laughs> well, there there are ways in which I think, it, yeah, even 30 years later, it's not entirely sure that the way people are using intersectionality reflects my understanding of it. Well, I want to get um, to that later. But yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, I would say a couple things. So it's important to note that intersectionality was an articulation of sensibilities that had existed long before black feminist theory goes back, you know, to the, the 18th century. So it's not as though black feminism was first never articulated. And two, it was also not as though those articulations really were able to lodge themselves deeply into mainstream feminism or mainstream anti-racism. So there's been a long struggle to acknowledge these issues. On top of that, this was an effort to articulate a black feminist theory within the law. Hmm. And that is a distinct animal. It is a conservative institution. It's the law. A, in, the law. Mm-hmm. It is an institution that asks for precedent. It's an institution that does categorical thinking. It's an institution that imagines itself to be quasi-scientific. So to present a concept in a legal context, which in many ways ran against some of its basic instincts, was a challenge in and of itself. So, so the project was both articulating it in a language that was familiar and understandable within the law, and then trying to persuade people that this was a meaningful way to think about discrimination and was an important way to think about it. So I would say that for at least 10 years, it felt like I was writing in a cave and listening to my own echo. Within some quarters, intersectionality became a conversation within critical race theory, which was also a project that I was a part of. Uh, and what founding. do we mean by that? What do we mean by critical? So critical race theory is um, a set of legal conversations about the limitations of mainstream anti-discrimination law. It, it challenges the way our societies come to think about what is racial discrimination, what is the legitimate parameter of what a legal intervention in racial inequality should be. So we were a bunch of young post-civil rights students and professors who'd grown up around the 60s, had witnessed much of the civil rights movement, and in the 80s were witnessing the pushback, the the resistance to the transformative potential of uh, civil rights law. And we're paying close attention to the way the pushback was rationalized, like 
it's only discrimination if we can find a bull Connor kind mm-hmm. of person. And the it's it's sort of the lynch rope idea of discrimination as a, as opposed to the everyday way in which racial um, discrimination is reproduced without people even necessarily thinking about it. I bull Connor for people who may not recall or are trying to figure out where do I know that name. <laughs> uh, I was in Birmingham. He was the sheriff and he is the one that sicked the dogs and the water hoses on the civil rights workers, including the young people. That's right. <laughs> yes. And so that's pretty much much a, a classic idea about a, what racism looks like. And our understanding was that that's just a very small piece of what produces racial inequality, a very small piece of the legacy of white supremacy. So we were the students who were sitting in at Harvard mm-hmm. to demand courses that looked at race and constitutional law. And we demanded more uh, faculty that had lived lives and had practiced law as people of color because we understood that there were meaningful differences that could not be papered over by a colorblind approach. So critical race theory was a conversation. It was part of the critical legal studies movement. We contested both with some of the more mainstream folks who you know, thought that racial justice could be advanced significantly within these narrow frames. And we also, you know, had some conflict with even people in the critical legal studies movement who were progressive but didn't really have a race critique. So in those spaces, intersectionality came out of those dynamics, those conversations, and had some circulation in that space. And I think the next big space it moved to was in feminism, partly because the next article I wrote was about violence against women and and how all the violence was something that women across the board dealt with. They dealt with it differently given their intersectional uh, location. So it had a lot of uptake there. But I, I would say that for the most part, it was pretty much confined within those spaces and then in international human rights spaces hadn't really made it very much into the popular culture until I think very recently. So let me just go back and pick up uh, one thing that you said about the whole bull Connor sensibility about it. Is it correct to say then that what you were trying to move against was people thinking fire-breathing racist, that's what it looks like, versus systemic? So these issues are across the board in ways you may not think of. They may be in housing. They may be in domestic violence. They may be in all kinds of other policy. And in that way, when we bring the concept of intersectionality to that and critical race theory looking at it in that way, we can and use the law in a more specific but broader way to really think in an expansive way about how this interacts. So I'm going to record <laughs> what you just said, and whenever anybody asks me, I'm just going to play that. That's exactly right. right? Okay. Exactly right. And, you, you know, for, for the most part, intersectionality is, and people think it's about identity, you know, exclusively identity. And it's partly because as intersectionality has traveled, it many times travels without its critical race theory context. Within critical race theory, we understand that we're talking about structures. We're talking about institutional practices. And we're talking about how those practices create particular burdens for people who are identified in certain ways by those institutional practices. So you you have to have a sense that discrimination and power, first of all, is about something more than 
bias on the part of a racist or sexist individual. If, if that's your starting point, you'll never get intersectionality. You'll think it's just about an identity politic, look at me, look at me. If you have an understanding of illegitimate power as something that's institutional and structural. It's about the way qualifications are predicated on the biographies and functions of institutions that were constructed when women or people of color weren't even allowed in them. If you get that, then you understand that intersectionality builds on that. It's saying we have to pay attention not only to the way that the identity of white men in higher education or in law or in business actually reproduces itself through qualifications. Do they look like me? Do they have the same histories? Do they have the same access to knowledge? Once you get that, then intersectionality helps you understand that you have to ask more than one question when you're looking at your employment regime. You can't just say is this institutionally problematic for people of color or is it institutionally problematic for women? You have to also recognize that some things may be institutionalized barriers for people who are both women and people of color. If you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley. This is a special Under the Radar with Callie Crossley podcast extra. I'm here with scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, the recipient of this year's Gitler Prize from Brandeis University. Now, let's talk about how intersectionality, in your words, has often traveled beyond its framework of critical race theory and what that means. So we here on Under the Radar did a show a few months back on Intersectional Feminism 101, in which we had three scholars and we tried to go at it in every single way to get people to understand what the word means, because we recognize that it's been given a higher visibility, particularly right after the Women's March. A lot of conversation about what did that mean. You know, we knew people didn't know, so we had this and we had a very robust discussion about it, which has, um, I'm happy to say, been reviewed since then by many other people. But it did make me wonder, and now I get to ask the person who created the concept, if what you are hearing about how it is used now today was right where you thought it should be, or what made you happy about the fact that the concept is being recognized in other circles other than scholarly and social justice and legal, and what concerns you about how it's being used? Yeah. Well, you know, I have to first start with a caveat. You know, concepts take on lives of their own all the time. And, you know, intersectionality was an adaptation in a particular context of ideas that had existed before, and it will continue to be that for other people. So that's my caveat. And, you know, the, the place where I come into the conversation is where intersectionality is defined either by those who seek to critique it or those who seek to mobilize it. And my work gets cited. That's where I feel like I have something to say about it. Um, So, for example, I was reading an op-ed in in the New York Times one day a couple months ago and uh, saw a story about a controversy that had happened at the Dyke March in Chicago. And I'm reading it with interest, and suddenly I see my name show up <laughs> in a way that says, this shows the problem of intersectionality. See, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw. 
at that point, I think, okay, this is a misuse and abuse of intersectionality that is deeply troubling. So of the many things that I've seen that I find distressing, I've seen intersectionality as anti-Semitic, intersectionality as anti-Christian, intersectionality as anti-democratic, intersectionality as a religion, intersectionality as identity politics and political correctness on steroids. So there's this kind of whole frame that I think allows critics of a whole range of progressive politics today to wrap up their analysis about what's going wrong in one term, and intersectionality seems pretty convenient as that term. I'd say on the other side, intersectionality as a stand-in for diversity or intersectionality as a way of saying, oh, it's all complicated. We all have multiple identities, so we can't say anything about anything because we're all very complex. Those kind of ideas... I think, undermine what the point of intersectionality was. It was an intervention in social justice practice. It was a way of pushing us to think in a more nuanced way about the way we talk about forms of discrimination, forcing us to think more deeply about the way that we move against social injustice. So to take it out of a social injustice discourse, to me, is the first moment of undermining the the concept. And then I think to just frame it as it's just about diversity, it basically builds on the problem of diversity in the first place, which was a substitution for thinking about concrete forms of racial injustice. So in some ways, the way intersectionality is traveling it's not unique. It is the consequence of a period of time in which some of the traditional ways that we had talked and thought about injustice has been weakened. And so intersectionality kind of reflects that. But I think also it also reflects a certain discomfort with the original subjects of intersectionality, which were black women. So I've seen intersectional discussions both here and internationally where the projects seem to be how can we kind of gentrify this concept? How can we claim it and use it without having to really deal with the company that comes with it? And that, I think, is the part of intersectional travels that is, you know, most distressing and and the one that I'm most interested now in writing back to. And when you do write back in these circumstances or speak back to it, how are people hearing it? Well, I think that a lot of people who came to intersectionality as an extension and articulation of black feminism are happy to actually see black women reintroduced into a concept that their lives helped to produce. I think in reality, there are some spaces that would reflect the sensibility that we are over race, and at least we're over race when it's occupied by black bodies. 
So intersectionality is interesting, but it's interesting for other things that it allows us to see, other issues that it allows us to grapple with. So what I actually do worry somewhat about is that as intersectionality becomes a framework that many people use in human rights contexts and in philanthropy, Sometimes that use is made possible because other people are saying we need intersectionality, mm-hmm. not because women of color are saying that. That can't actually, at the end of the day, be surprising because part of what intersectionality is doing is interrogating you know, racism, particularly anti-black racism, it's interrogating patriarchy. So it, it's not surprising that other groups who might be neither black nor women actually are also experiencing intersectional harms, but don't necessarily see the expression of intersectionality as as signing them up for doing this other work that intersectionality initially represented. So let me go back to the Women's March, because I thought it was a very interesting discussion that grew out of that. As people may remember or may not know, the original concept came from a woman who was retired, thinking about it, wanted a way to respond, came up with her small idea and put it out there, and it just grew and grew and grew, and it became many smaller marches around the country. And then that huge one, I think it's still the largest march in Washington now, and people were very excited. Folks came to the table with many, many different issues about why they were there. There was no singular issue except we want to speak back as women and we want to be seen as women. And in the context of coming together to organize it, it was made clear, hey, the people who are organizing it seem to have left out (laughs) a lot of women of color who are not a part of this and therefore we have not considered the intersectional concerns and needs of of whole groups of folk, of women of color. And how do you deal with that? And it was kind of messy. And, you know, when it settled down, they had changed the leadership to reflect uh, a more diverse uh, leadership. But there were, as a result of that, there was a whole lot of discussion. And um, I saw some interesting articles of some white women feeling a little bit insulted, others saying, oh, I didn't see that. Now let's talk about it and let's go forward. So I wonder how, as you were watching this, how you felt about it. And in that way, in that instance, was both the concept being interrogated correctly and the the end result was something that demonstrated and kind of an appropriate use of intersectionality. Well, the question about the debate on the march, I think, raises lots of issues that are closely related to intersectionality and consequently intersectionality got framed as the wide lens through which one could see these debates. And there are some ways that I think it is spot on, but a few ways that I think it veers off into some rather difficult territory of just pure identity politics. So I think intersectionality 101 is the idea that, you know, women are shaped by an entire range of social characteristics and experiences. So women make up people who are white, non-white, cis, trans, queer, immigrant, natives. Able-bodied. Right, all (laughs) sorts of. And so one of the impulses around organizing as women is trying to figure out how to capture 
that broad diversity of womanness to create some kind of political voice that speaks for the whole by all of its constituent parts. And that's been a difficult concept historically for feminists. It's been a difficult concept for all identity politics, I have to say. Uh, feminists are not the only ones that, that grapple with that. So it's not surprising that the first instinct was to say, we're just women. Why do we have to articulate all of these different ways in which, you know, we are women? So I saw that as sort of intersectionality versus non-intersectional feminism 101. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't surprising. And yes, there were going to be, you know, moments of hurt and outrage and what are you doing to our, our march kind of stuff. So I thought that was Parfacor, and I was glad to see that there was pushback in an attempt to create a discourse and a march that reflected that. I would also say that many times intersectionality sometimes gets inserted as an identity moment rather than an articulation of issues from a fully intersectional frame. And that's where occasionally we run into some problems. So it's not as though... Give me an example. So one of the campaigns that I've been involved in is Say Her Name. Mm -hmm. And it is about state violence against black women. We know that state violence against black people is a long-term historic injury to our bodies. And we get that. But it's also the case that that problem has largely been framed almost exclusively as a male problem. So the names that we know, the circumstances that we think about driving while black, being a male while black, that's what we understand as being the core of that experience. Yet black women have long experienced state-sanctioned violence in ways that are similar to black men. So black women get killed driving while black too. And also ways that are distinct. Black women are sexually abused by the police. Black women have experienced a whole range of, you know, state-sanctioned violence against them when they are in need, when they have mental disabilities, when they are looking for help, when they are homeless. The, the list goes on. Let me give some examples. So you can think of an Eric Garner. You know that name. You can think of a um, Tamir Rice, Tamir Rice or, Mike a, Brown. or a Trayvon Martin. But you don't perhaps know, a Rakia Boyd. Or Michelle Cassell. Right. Or Tanisha Anderson. Right. We could go on and on. Mm -hmm. I and mean, one, of, one of the things I do in my talks is I list all the names of black men, you know, and ask people to stand up. And when they hear a name that they don't recognize, sit down. Everywhere I go, doesn't matter the racial makeup of the audience, you know, whether I'm talking to academics or social justice advocates, even internationally. If I give three or four male names, most of the people will know who they are. The first woman's name that, that I name, half the people sit down. And by the time I get to four, pretty much no one is still standing. And these generally are black women who've been killed within the same span of time, sometimes within the same month, even the same week, sometimes by the same police department as the men who've been killed. So the point is just to say that when we think of state-sanctioned violence against black people, we often think about it exclusively as a male problem, right? So the intersectional frame is to think of state-sanctioned violence with a gender-inclusive frame? How does it play out across all genders, not just men? Well, one of the problems is if we go into feminist spaces, 
with an understanding of the problem that is still framed in that way. Just because we're women doesn't mean that we have an intersectional take on racial justice mm-hmm. problems. It just means that we're going into feminist spaces carrying a banner that is not necessarily gender inclusive. So I've seen this happen in spaces where women of color talk about state-sanctioned violence, but they still don't talk about the many women who've been killed by the police. It still is focused pretty much on men. So that was something that I saw at the march. When, when Say Her Name came up, I was with a whole lot of mothers with daughters who'd been killed by the police, and they were very much expecting to hear their daughters' names mentioned. And the mothers I was with didn't hear their daughters' names mentioned. So this is just an example of how we're Mm -hmm. still struggling. It is important that we get a seat at the table, absolutely. But it's also important that when we sit at that table and we're bringing racial justice into it, we're bringing a racial justice frame that has already been fully intersectionalized. The intersectional moment isn't just because we're sitting at the table. It's because we're bringing into that space. We think that women need to deal with police violence. And we think that as women, we need to be the ones that put women at the center of state-sanctioned violence. Those are the challenges that I think we have. So now my last personal question, and it's this. You have created an incredible legacy. It's rare that one is around to see one's legacy in action, even if you have some problems with how it may be articulated. And to have it appreciated, that's the other thing, because usually you're out of step in time with that. So I just wonder how that feels. You're Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is a concept, as you have said yourself uh, very well, you can't see the problem, you can't fix it, so you made us see it. We're now working on fixing it, many of us. So what does that feel like to be you in that space? (laughs) Well, you know, I have an enormous amount of gratitude for all of the heroes, sheroes that made it possible for this whole generation that I'm part of to actually carry forth the wisdom that they created through struggle in conditions and circumstances that made the ability to struggle and survive far less likely than what our generation has been able to enjoy and realize. And those include, you know, women like Ida B. Wells, women like Fannie Lou Hamer, the women who were struggling for this sensibility before it had a clear name, before there was an audience for it, and had to struggle even within their own ranks, not just with men, but with other women, right? So many times I I look back and I think, well, what was it that pushed them forward when, you know, even their work at the time many times was critiqued by people that they saw themselves as part of? And I get tremendous inspiration from that. And I get tremendous inspiration from, you know, people in my own family. My mother was a race woman, a true race woman of the 20th century, and also, I think, a a proto-feminist, a proto-black feminist, because she didn't take any stuff, both as a black person and as a woman. And I, I know most of what I hear myself saying, there's a version of it that I heard my mom saying in my home. So I consider myself really fortunate to have been able to be shaped both by history and by people who showed me the way 
to live up to our collective responsibilities as people of color, as black people and as women, to be the expression of the deepest aspirations of liberty and justice that we have a right to. So I just feel, you know, very fortunate. I feel very lucky and very anxious to see what the next step is going to be. Like, what are we going to do now? I have an incredible amount of excitement, notwithstanding the moment that we're in right now. I think this moment really calls on us to dig deep and to take real steps towards imagining social justice movements that really build on the insights of not just intersectionality, but all sorts of social justice visionaries who have given us a a way of thinking through the toughest moments that we're encountering as this nation. Well, I feel lucky to have had time to talk to you, so thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. Kimberly Crenshaw is a leading scholar of critical race theory, the developer of the theory of intersectionality and concept, a law professor at UCLA and Columbia University, and the recipient of the 2017 Gitler Prize from Brandeis University. That's it for this special edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. on 89.7 WGBH for our regular airings of our show. In the meantime, you can find our show at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. 